Today we're going back in time 40 years to Thursday, August 20, 1981. It's a beautiful morning in Dallas, Texas, and an unseasonably cool 68 degrees at 0630 hours as a click is heard in every fire station in Dallas, followed by the lights being automatically turned on and then the tones of the morning speaker test. Also in every firehouse, the sweet smell of coffee brewing in the kitchen is wafting through the station right now. Whichever member has the least amount of time on the job at a given station is out putting up the American flag and will then retrieve the Dallas Morning News from the approach and lay it on the kitchen table for the more senior men to read. B-shift is a shift coming on duty, and A-shift is a shift about to go home having completed their 24-hour shift. The oncoming B-shifters remove the A-shifters firefighting coats and helmets from the rigs and replace them with their own. They check their SCBAs, self-contained breathing apparatus, and other critical equipment before having a cup of that coffee. There'll be plenty of light-hearted banner between the two shifts at the kitchen table, most of which would make a sailor blush, but along with trading jabs, the A-shift officers will be sharing pertinent business information with the B-shift officers that they need to be made aware of, such as any unusual calls the day before, any equipment issues that need their attention, or any new directives from the chief they need to know about. Meanwhile, the cook will start making a hearty breakfast, and as often as not, at least in the busier stations, the first call of the morning will interrupt that breakfast. Occasionally, It'll be a house or apartment fire, which the guys actually don't mind missing breakfast for. In fact, there's nothing they like better. Not because they wish misfortune on anyone, they don't. But they signed up to do a job, and they love the challenge and the excitement of putting it all on the line when the bell hits. More often, however, those breakfast time calls are a rush hour car wreck, or someone has suffered the inconvenience of waking up dead, or... Any one of a million different issues that people will call the fire department for when they just don't know what else to do. But no matter what kind of call it is, when the bell hits, the troops are going to rush out the door and do whatever they can to help. And when they're done, they're going to come back to a plate of cold eggs, bacon, biscuits, and gravy that might have been pretty tasty just an hour or two earlier. At this time tomorrow morning, the tones for the 0630 speaker test will sound again, and the same shift change routine will repeat itself all over town. But not everyone going home to their families tomorrow morning will be the same man they are this morning. They will be forever changed. Yet, the ones going home changed are the lucky ones because not everyone is going home. At the time our story is set, which you'll recall is 1981, Station 7 at 6010 Davenport Road is a virtual outpost on the North Dallas frontier Eventually, the city of Dallas would build two more fire stations even further north. But in 1981, Station 7 covers a lot of territory with not a lot of help. 
Engine 7 is the only apparatus assigned to Station 7 at this time. Today, Captain Little is on the seat, Ron Tucker is driving, and on the back end are firefighters Tim Barry and rookie firefighter Steve Maddox, who until just recently was a school teacher. A few miles south of Station 7 is Station Number 56 at 7040 Beltline Road. Station 56 houses three companies. There's Engine 56, a pumper, Truck 56, a hook and ladder truck, and 756, which is an ambulance staffed with two paramedics. The captain assigned to Station 56 B-Shift is Richard Beebe, but he is on scheduled leave today, so paramedic driver Ed Metters, who is assigned to the ambulance normally, will ride the seat of Truck 56 in Captain Beebe's place. This means Ed is the officer in charge of the truck crew. Ed is a gifted athlete and gymnast who was once an Olympic hopeful before he ended up serving with the Green Berets. So he's the kind of guy you want on your team, whether it's an athletic competition or a fight. Charlie Rogers has until recently been a firefighter in Oak Cliff, but he has just been promoted to the rank of driver and assigned to Truck 56. Charlie is a firefighter's firefighter who loves nothing more than a good smoky fire and he's growing impatient with the slower pace of this North Dallas fire station. A few miles southeast of Station 56 is Station 22, which is on Coit Road near LBJ Freeway. Engine 22, Booster 22, and Battalion 2 are the companies assigned to Station 22. Booster 22 was what was commonly called an A-Wagon. For those not familiar with either of these terms, it's like the fire engine's smaller cousin. It was great for grass fires, car fires, dumpster fires, and such, but the booster also responded to structure fires within its district. Today, the Dallas Fire Department has a number of boosters, both Type 6 and Type 3 in wildland lingo, but neither are exactly the same as the old A-wagons, and more importantly, they are not staffed. They sit unmanned and unused most of the time, but are available when needed for a grass fire or a parking garage fire. But in 1981, Booster 22 was staffed full-time with at least two and sometimes three firefighters. Battalion 2 refers to the district chief and his command tech. Together, they comprise a unit known as Battalion 2. These men function as a team, and their most important job is working together to command fire scenes. But the nature of the job is that much of their time is spent performing a myriad of administrative functions. Chief Franklin is the chief on duty today, but is out of the office this morning because he's working on a big project for the chief of the department. He will return to Station 22 this evening after a full day of administrative duties. The command tech spends the morning making sure the district is staffed with all the right people, with all the right qualifications, in all the right places. There's a shortage of firefighters at Station 56, so the command tech calls the station officer at Station 37 over on Greenville Avenue and tells him to swing a man to Station 56. Over at Station 37, Tom Burns is waiting on the call. Tom is a rookie with a little less than three years on the job, and 37's is overstaffed today, so he knows he's going to be swinging like a pair of garden gates. Sure enough, the phone rings, and soon thereafter, his officer tells him to saddle up and go to 56s. So he throws his firefighting gear at his truck and heads out. 
When Tom arrives at 56's, Lieutenant Ledbetter, the officer in charge of the station today, moves firefighter Frank Lindsay from the truck to the engine, and he puts Tom on the truck where he will have the whole back end of truck 56 to himself because they are going to ride with just three people, Ed, Charlie, and Tom. A good working fire requires a lot of truck work to be done quickly, much more than a three-person crew can really do. But in 1981, the Dallas Fire Department has no staffing policy that requires four people on an apparatus. That would come later after a bitter fight over staffing. But at the time, riding with three was common. August 20 proves to be an ordinary day. There were the ordinary emergency calls in North Dallas that day, all of which were resolved by ordinary firefighters. Guys just like you and me, filled with ordinary hopes and dreams and ordinary plans for the next day. One of the men has an off-duty job roofing houses, but he has recently bought a boat, and he's excited about going to the lake tomorrow with his friend and fellow firefighter Stuart Grant for a much-needed respite from working two jobs to provide for his family. Another of the guys has just had a wedding anniversary, and he's looking forward to getting up in the morning, leaving the kids with the grandparents, and taking his wife down to San Antonio where they're going to enjoy the river walk. But night is coming, and the night will not be ordinary. Nobody from the stations we've talked about will have an easy night, nor a peaceful tomorrow. Late in the evening, legendary oil man Ray Hunt of Hunt Oil Company fame and his wife Nancy are meeting with the architect at their new home in the 5900 block of Twin Coves near Station 7. They plan to move into the nearly 10,000 square foot house tomorrow and are discussing final details there at the home until 1130 at night. About four hours after the Hunts leave their new house, at 348 in the morning, a sensor at the house detects a fire. A signal is immediately sent to the fire alarm monitoring service, who then dispatches a neighborhood patrol person to check on it. He arrives sometime later and confirms that, yes, there is a fire. Having received confirmation from the patrol person, the alarm service calls the fire department, and the alarm is transmitted to the stations at 4.07. That means 19 critical minutes passed between the time the fire alarm system tripped and the time the fire department was notified and got units rolling to the scene. With the sounding of the bells, the men bolt out of their bunk, slip both feet into the bunker boots they've carefully set beside the bed, then pull up the suspenders. Within seconds, they are running to the rig. In the 19 minutes that were lost, in between the time the fire was sensed by the alarm system and the time that the personnel in the station were notified, the fire had time to grow from a small spark in an electrical box near the back of the house to a raging inferno. This was not a room and contents fire. This was a fire that was attacking the structure itself and therefore threatening the stability of the structure. But of course, the firefighters don't know how long the fire has been burning. 
They just know they have a working fire because they can see a glow on the horizon from the cab of their rigs, and they know that glow is not the rising sun. Nonetheless, they are racing toward the glow as quickly as they can. As mentioned earlier, there was a former school teacher on the back end of Engine 7. Steve Maddox had been with the department less than a year, and of course, much of that time had been spent in training, so he had not had an opportunity to do a lot of serious firefighting by this point in his career. That was about to change. I was able to get Steve to join me and my co-host Mike Otto to talk about this incident, beginning with Engine 7's response. Here's his description of that. Well, when we pulled out of Station 7, we turned on Preston Road and was headed south on Preston Road, and I made a comment to uh, Ron Tucker, go, man, I hope that's the only fire we have, because that sure is a big one. Wow. So Interesting. So when we got down there, we pulled up. Uh, first thing, you know, uh, Captain Little told us to pull off our spaghetti, so we pulled our spaghetti off and started laying it out. Uh, Raylor Master was the driver, but he was off that day. So I kind of back up. As actually, it was Tim Berry that was on the back with me. Ron Tucker was actually driving that day. Mm-hmm. And Captain Little was riding the seat. Uh, okay, well, we pull up, and uh, it's about a 10,000-square-foot home. Uh, it's kind of like three sections uh on the left there was a one story in the middle was two story and then on the right it was i think it was still one story not sure it's been so long ago but i definitely know that on the left it was one story and in the middle was a two-story building and there the one story on the left was fully involved i mean the fire was already there and it was already getting up into the two-story so anyway we tried to go in the front door but it was a big, what I remember is a big oak door, and there was no knocking that door in. So we went around to the left. There was a pane window there, and I remember getting the pickaxe and hitting it, and I don't remember how many times I hit it before it finally shattered. About three, four, five, I don't know. I don't remember. Interesting. Finally, it broke. Well, fixing the, I was fixing to advance my spaghetti inside that window, and uh, Chief Franklin came up and told me and Tim to go and pull a big line off, engine seven. So I laid my spaghetti nozzle down at that window, and me and Tim went back and pulled the, at that time it was a two and a half, you know, now they're three inch, but it was, I don't have many, it says 600 feet is what we actually pulled. So we pulled the 600 feet to the left all the way around to the back of the, the uh the house and started spraying the back of the house with that big line me and tim there okay let's take a moment to dive into this a little bit first off what is a spaghetti not everyone may be familiar with this term so can you break that down for us mike when uh the host or host Chuck and I got on in 83, we were still carrying these on our apparatus and they would, uh, they were a tray, basically a wood plywood tray of, uh, about eight foot in length and about three. I haven't seen one in a long time. So, uh, but probably between three and four feet, 
in width, then it had a back wall and two long side walls that were probably roughly 10 inches tall. And inside of that, we would have two individual 150-foot sections of hose. And these two were joined at the female ends by a uh, gated Y that had a, uh, so it was an inch and a half on each side of the gated Y, and then you had a two and a half inch female that would be used to attach to a two and a half inch at that time supply line. Because before the advent of the five inch engine, most of our uh, lays were what we would call reverse lay, where the engine would go to the front of the house. Guys would pull off the spaghetti. They may pull it off in the tray, intact in the tray, or they could, two men could easily deploy the spaghetti, pull it off from the back of the engine, march to the front door, and then by pulling a two and a half inch supply line to it, attaching it to the gated Y, then they would have two 150 foot lines at the door. This was replaced by our cross lays that we currently carry that are connected to our 500-gallon booster tanks in which they are 250 feet in length. So there's five sections of inch and three-quarter hose now. So it makes a big difference. But basically, with a spaghetti load, you had two 150-foot firefighting attack lines. The other thing I want to highlight is when Steve said that he had to hit the window multiple times with his axe in order to break it out. This, of course, is highly unusual, and this weird little anomaly is going to play a major role in this incident. After Engine 7 arrived, the next arriving crews were probably the ones from Station 56. You'll recall that another rookie firefighter, Tom Burns, had been swung from his home station over to 56's that morning and was put on truck 56 for the shift. Here's Tom's description of what he saw and heard on the way to the fire. Yeah, we could see the fire from way out. Really? Not soon after we left the house and turned on to, I, I wouldn't, I can't remember, but we could see the flames. Because I, <laughs> I remember... Rogers got really excited in a happy way, mm-hmm. you know, like some firemen do. Oh, yeah. He was, oh, yeah. boy, we got one here, you know. We sure did. We also spoke with someone that was on Engine 56 that day, Frank Lindsay. This was the firefighter I mentioned earlier who was moved from Truck 56 to Engine 56 when the swingman Tom Burns arrived. I asked about Engine 56's arrival, but before he tells this, I want to make you aware that what he calls plexiglass is actually, I believe, tempered glass. There's a lot of confusion about this for some reason, as I've heard multiple people, not just Frank, say it was plexiglass. But the official fire report, as well as a majority of the people I've spoken to, say it was tempered glass. I've also heard that it was actually triple glazed tempered glass. Regardless, here's Frank telling about Engine 56's arrival and initial actions. My lieutenant and I 
we took a line around back. We called ourselves going to cut it off. Mm-hmm. We didn't realize how far around back was. Mm. Uh, a lady was in the front. And she was hollering there's someone in there. She thought it was a, somebody already living there. Oh, okay. That's why he and Charlie did a rescue. Oh, okay. Um, the doors were plain, they were glass door sections. Okay. But we didn't know uh, they had, like, plexiglass. Mm. And they, when we headed out, when we grabbed our line, headed around back, we saw Ed and Charlie trying to get through one of those plexiglass. Didn't pay it a bunch of attention. We got around back and... I figured we'd just knock a window, I'd climb through and go in. Mm-hmm. No. I remember throwing a brick at the uh, glass and it bouncing back at me. Ah. And I thought, oh, this something's different here. Yeah. Had a pike pole, hit it a couple of times, nothing. Wow. Uh, I can't remember what I finally used to punch a hole through the glass, but my lieutenant and I finally got in there, drug a line in as far as we could. Yeah. But we realized it was such a distance around the house right. that we weren't going to be able to do much good. I asked Frank when he first knew something was wrong at this fire. Uh, it's going to sound silly, mm-hmm. but the first time we jumped off the engine and pulled that line out, something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Something doesn't fit in. You can't put your hand on it. Right. But I knew, I told Lieutenant Lou, I'm not crazy about this, man. Something's wrong. Yeah. And we, you know, just did what we were supposed to do, kept going. Let's pause a moment and review what we know so far. We have an early morning fire in a very large North Dallas house. There was a delay in reporting the alarm, so the fire has made a lot of headway before the cavalry arrives. Engine 7 is first on location and, seeing a massive front door, decides to make entry through a window on the left side. Next, the crews from 56s arrive. Engine 56 begins stretching a line around to the right side of the house. Now let's go back to Tom Burns to hear about Truck 56's initial actions. We went to the front door, and it was big double oak and deadbolt, and we couldn't get in. But, you know, thinking back, I think all we had was a fire axe. And then, you know, the perfunctory short ladder and pike pole I was carrying. Right. That was useless. Right. So we just moved to this first window, which was, yeah, I'm not sure what it was like, opaque. looked like a skylight. And what, well, are, we, are we good to jump? We kind of, okay. So, um, and we're looking at uh, a diagram, and it's showing just to um, – to the left, if you were facing the front door, and around a corner, a window, it's labeled where entry was made. It's my understanding that one man, and I'm thinking that man was you, that went in initially and went in and tried to unlock the, the front door? We all went in together. Okay. And, yeah, that's what we did. We hugged the wall to follow back to the front. Gotcha. And we we got to the front door and... There again. Was it? Was it? I was wondering from the looking at the um, the write ups. I was wondering if it was a keyed deadbolt and the keys weren't in it instead of a thumb tab. There was no uh, thumb tab. Yeah. So so it was as solidly locked inside as outside. So we made our way back, just reversed, 
we got to back to the window, and there was a, a captain there. He handed in a nozzle from a spaghetti line, the okay. old inch mm-hmm. and a half. Mm-hmm. You all, mm-hmm. Did you all have those? Yeah. So we dragged that in and to the stairs, and this second floor was just solid fire. And uh, Rogers had the nozzle, and we all we went up five, ten steps, and <laughs> he put the straight bore on, and it just disappeared into fire. Really, it was it was totally ineffective. Booster 22 and Battalion 2 are on scene at this point. Let's go now to Chief Franklin, who would become the incident commander, to hear what he saw on arrival. When I got there, they'd already put a second on it. Okay. And when I got there, I put a third on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, and a lot of people don't know this, but Chief Perry Mm -hmm. had changed the way we fight fire that I have fought fire in 20 years. Okay. This first fire ever since he changed. And he said, you will be in front of the fire, and that's where you will stay. Okay. Orders. As a battalion chief. So, the battalion chief would battalion be in front chief. of the fire? Okay, yeah. That's right. So, anyway, yep. when we when I arrived, uh, like I say, it was fire. You could see fire, but the fire was coming up and going down back to the left in the long string of building, not in the main, main building. Okay. Fire was coming up. Going down. Okay, I want to expand a little bit on something Chief Franklin was saying about this concept, very new at the time, where the incident commander would remain out in front of the fire. This is related to a push by the brass for what would come to be called the incident command system, and this was going to be a seismic shift in how fire ground operations were conducted. The only problem is it requires a lot of training and practice to be properly implemented, and this concept would not be fully accepted and widely practiced at Dallas Fire Department fire scenes for years to come. We'll talk more about that later. So we now have all our first alarm companies on scene, and a second and third alarm have been requested. Engine 7 had pulled a spaghetti, broken a window on the left side of the house, and prepared to make entry but was in order to pull a big line. So they left that line there and proceeded to pull a big line around the left or Bravo side of the house to the back. Engine 56 had pulled a spaghetti and went around the right or Delta side of the house to the back. Truck 56, meanwhile, had made entry near the front of the house, going through the window that Engine 7 broke out and had attempted, unsuccessfully, to unlock the front door from inside the house. We're going to go back to Steve Maddox on Engine 7 now. Uh, there was five firefighters that had gone in through the back uh, door area there, which was actually, it was a kind of like a patio that I th- it looked like it was screened in or maybe whatever. But anyway, the only thing I remember there was is they when they came out, on the, it was that would be technically if on the back it would be my left side, but if you're looking at the front of the house, it was the right side. Well, they tried to make entry there, but they 
all came out, and the last person, the fifth guy that stepped off that back porch or whatever it was, the whole back end fell in. That's what I remember. I mean, fell in. Wow. Thinking, wow. I mean, yeah. 10 seconds sooner, it would have got him. Uh, 30 seconds, it would have gotten all five. Okay, so Steve on Engine 7 has described for us a collapse near the back of the house that resulted in a near miss for firefighters operating in the area. Things are starting to go south quickly at this fire. Now, just because the falling debris did not hit anyone at the back of the house, that does not mean that the collapse had no consequences. A collapse in one part of the house can change conditions in another part of the house. A wall of heat and flame may be unleashed by the collapse and push into previously uninvolved areas. Areas that were tenable just before the collapse may suddenly become untenable. When we last spoke with Tom Burns about the actions of Truck 56, they had been operating a hose line at a stairway inside the house, but it was proving ineffective against a large volume of fire over their heads. Let's return now to Tom and Truck 56 and pick up where we left off. We came down the stairs and we were there was this partition wall here and uh because i remember there was a piano in there and the roof started falling in debris lots of it and so we we were hunkered down actually one two three in a row right at this partial wall and uh i ran out of air and uh, I turned to Metters. I said, "I'm out of air. I'm gonna. I need to get out." And uh, they didn't say anything. So I started back to the window. At about which time, an I beam came down. They had a steel I beam, but fortunately, it hung up on that wall. And we were like right under it, like in a teepee. Wow. And uh, then I, the, <laughs> the egress was becoming clogged with debris. And I wasn't even sure wh- where the window was anymore. Interesting. So I kind of made a, a dash, really, kind of a plunge head first. And they weren't behind me. And I thought, what in the hell? Anyway... I got hung up in the the window with debris and whatnot, and somebody, I don't know who it was, but bless them, pulled me out from right, like, kind of just straddling the window. He pulled me out, and I just kind of stumbled around, and then I just went back to uh, the front lawn where the command was. Well, we didn't have command then, but right. where the chief was. And, you know, I said, I said, they're in there. And uh, they went into uh, overdrive. Okay, so what's happened is the failure of a beam has caused conditions in the house to change suddenly and drastically for the worse. One man, because the alarm was going off on his self-contained breathing apparatus, was already on his way to the window as the conditions were worsening. 
He dives for the window and gets stuck, but is pulled to safety. He immediately reports that there are two men still inside. We're going to go back to Steve Maddox on Engine 7 now. You'll recall that the last thing he mentioned was a collapse in the rear of the house that nearly took out some firefighters. Here's Steve again. So anyway, and when that happened, uh, they some I, I don't remember if somebody started yelling or whatever. We went around to the side of the house, which in today's term would be Bravo. You know, if you go Alpha in the front, Bravo to the left. We went to the Bravo side, mm-hmm. was walking over there, and then we heard that uh, there's uh, firemen inside. So we went on around to the original window that we broke. And that's where Ed Matters and Charlie Rogers had gone in with Tom Burns. Well, of course, I, I at the time didn't know who was in there, what was in there, but they yelling firefighters inside. So I remember being at the window, and Chief Franklin was yelling, you know, and I, and I had my air pack on, and I don't know who else did, but Chief Franklin was, you know, yelling. I told him, I said, hey, Chief. I've got my air pack. I'm, I can go in. So I remember go, going in that window, uh, and there was so, nothing. So let me just clarify. So at this point, you're taking in the other side of the spaghetti. I guess uh, Rogers that, and Matters had one side of the spaghetti already in. And at this point now, you're going in after the collapse in the back. You're now got a, a free line, and you're going in with this second side of the spaghetti through that window that they had originally entered in, right? That is correct. They okay. originally took my spaghetti yep. inside. Okay. So back to your story. You now enter through that window with uh, the spaghetti. That and, is correct. Uh, inch and a half line. And uh, what are your actions then? Well, only thing, I, it was just, I mean, massive amount of fire. Mm-hmm. going in there and whenever and i went in there so started putting water on the fire or stuff mm-hmm. like that you know mm-hmm. you know not really knowing what I, we faced or who mm-hmm. where they was at or anything like that so we there was like a small hallway or something that was there you know so you're technically kind of going by the front door and that by the front door but you go into this room like 30 by 30 two-story high is where the we actually went into and once I did you have visibility because it had ventilated itself? It's my uh, understanding uh, well, that it did ventilate itself. Well, but I don't know when, of course. Yeah, that it happened. ventilated on me when it ventilated. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, so like I say, there was a lot of fire. Started putting water on it, stuff like that. I really had no idea who was behind me, backing me up. I had no idea at the time. You know, later found out that Captain Little was behind me, and I don't know who the third person was. But anyway, so. Finally got the fire knocked down there, got the fire knocked down into that big room, got all that fire knocked down. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe they went back into the left. Wasn't sure. Instead, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't really, you still couldn't see what, what, whatever you still, I mean, you just going in there. Well, they actually went into the dining room or what room it was to the right. Of course, we couldn't tell that was there or anything like that. So once I got, the the big part of that dining room knocked down. I'd handed the nozzle off to I don't know if it was Captain Little or the other person, whoever handled it to. Well anyway, they started going into the one story part and when they did I started pulling the hose and then all of a sudden I hear the ceiling break. 
And fortunately, I guess one thing I learned in rookie school that Hugh, Captain Weston taught, taught us, he said, if you ever hear the ceiling break, try to dive for the a, a wall or something, he said, because that's the only place you might survive. And everything came down on top of me. You know, and now are you on the first floor at yes, this time? This okay, is, this is this is it. Is this the area where there's a very high ceiling? That is correct. Okay, yes, okay. and which, which is probably the den. You think that's we're in the exactly den? what it okay. is? A big, the big room is. You know, okay. I would think it what it was. Like okay. I say, it's, it was just a vaulted ceiling over yeah. that. Uh, you, it, yeah. it was it was two stories up type ceiling. Right. So it's what twenty feet up, 10, uh, something like that. Of course, didn't really know all that at the time. So, like I say, whenever it, that ceiling did, I took like maybe a step, maybe two steps, whatever it was, toward the wall mm-hmm. when I heard it give. And next thing I know, there's fire all over me. Mm-hmm. And this is this is the honest truth. What I mean, all I saw was fire. I, my feet was trapped. And the first thing that came in my mind, believe it or not, was, you know what? You was teaching school this time last year. You know, <laughs> you, you know, you should be teaching school right now. And I thought to myself, wow. that, that was my first thing that came in mind. I'm thinking, that's, man, that's crazy thought. But that, that's what came in my mind. If you wouldn't, if you, if you still teaching school, you wouldn't be here right now. So just so our listeners understand, you were a, a school teacher by trade before you were a firefighter. That is correct. I taught four years of, at Dungville High School. Okay. And then what made you decide to make this change over to the fire department? Well, they had a referendum in 1978 that uh, brought the fire. You know, and I had no desire at all growing up. I never even thought about being a firefighter. But they had a, that referendum in 1978, and the ref, the Firefighter is going to be making nineteen thousand. I was only making eleven thousand teaching, and I thought, well, maybe I do it. Plus, Elaine, uh, we we just had our first child, and Elaine wanted to stay home. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is a way to stay home, mm-hmm. so she could stay home, and I nearly doubled my salary. So that's the reason I went, and th- never, th- never in the wildest dream that I thought I would be able to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one that if I saw blood, I ran the other way. <laughs> so, but that's what. Change back. I see. Okay, so before I sidetracked you, the roof had collapsed and you were wondering why you weren't still teaching school. Let's pick back up from there. That then that was like a five second thought, and then the next thing I was doing, I was looking and all I saw was fire around me like that, and I was trying to move my feet, my feet was trapped. And like this, and the only thing I saw in front of me was a bunch of fire. And I thought, you know what? There's two firefighters who are probably already dead, and I'm fixed to probably be dead. And so I am better do what I ever can to do it. So the next thing I did, it's just like playing football. You know how you just keep moving your legs, moving your legs. And finally, uh, when I say it, my one foot was caught, I couldn't get it loose. The other one was. I mean, you know, you just sit there and you just struggle until, you know, the, the guy either tackles you or let go. Well, that's what I felt like, you know, the, my – so anyway, finally I got my leg wow. loose, and so I crawled up over the pile of fire and came went back out the way I came because that's the only way I knew out. And and it was it wasn't funny at the time, but there was two firefighters coming in because they held, they heard me because I mean I started yelling, mm. you know I was yelling, and two firefighters coming in and I knocked both of them on their butts <laughs> and I and I went out the window, you know. You had enough of that place. Oh yeah. 
So after Tom Burns was pulled from the window he had attempted to dive through, the troops did, as he said, go into overdrive attempting a rescue. After observing a collapse near the back of the house, we heard Steve Maddox describe coming back around to the front and telling the chief that he was masked up and could make entry with the other side of the spaghetti, the currently unused side of the spaghetti. This would result in his own near miss shortly thereafter when the roof collapsed on him. Fortunately, Steve was able to self-extricate from the debris that had fallen on him and get out of the house, which had become a death trap. I understand that around this time, the troops were able to breach the front door, reportedly with a sawzall, and set a big line to knock down the fire in that area. Also around that time, and I don't know the exact sequence of events, but they were also able to breach the large tempered glass window in the front of the house. It was there. Just right there. Just on the other side of that window that they found our fallen heroes, Charlie Rogers and Ed Metters. In all likelihood, they could see the revolving red lights of the fire apparatus through that window and made their way toward it intent on breaking it out. To think, they made their way to the window and only glass lay between them and salvation, between them and the clean, cool, life-giving air that was just on the other side. But tempered glass, glass you could see through, but you couldn't break through, not without the right tool such as a center punch, doomed their efforts and sealed their fate. Two good men were taken from us far too soon on that fateful morning. Mike Otto and I wanted to learn a little bit more about who they were, so we called Chief Stuart Grant, a former Dallas Deputy Chief who is now the Assistant Chief of Operations in Grapevine. Stuart Grant and Charlie Rogers were close friends. Here's a portion of our conversation. So, uh, you actually knew Charlie Rogers, is that right? That's right. I knew Charlie. Um, when I got out of rookie school, I went to 15s mm-hmm. on B-Shift, and Charlie was assigned there. And Charlie kind of became my mentor, if you will, because mm. um, Charlie – he he rode the engine. I was assigned to the truck out of rookie school, but they put me on the engine, rode the engine. And uh, Charlie kind of took me under his wing. And I had my first couple of fires with, with Charlie and I on the line with back then Lieutenant Camplin. He made captain and is retired as a captain, but he was our lieutenant. But most of the time it was me and Charlie on the line together. And uh, Charlie was Charlie was very much a mentor. I mean, to this day, well, mom's passed away, but she classified and said Charlie was the guy that told me how to cook ah. and everything. Because I knew mm. I, in high school, you know, you had to bachelor survival and stuff, and I could boil water and stuff like that. But, <laughs> you know, I could survive. Yeah. But Charlie was the one that actually taught me how to cook and prepare a meal and prepare a meal for a group of people. Because at 15s in, we had, you know, 10 people there because the engine and truck were there, and the deputy was there at the time. And so we had 10 assigned. And so he taught me how to cook, you know, those, right. you know, breakfast, lunch, and supper. 
for 10 folks and then put it on the table. So, you know, Charlie helped me in that respect. And, you know, and I always smile thinking, you know, making something. I'm like, well, I wonder what Charlie think about this. <laughs> but, uh, but so he was very much, you know, a kind of a mentor as we went through it. And then as we went on, um, he was, he got into roofing off duty and, uh, I'd done various other little things. And so I went and started helping him roof. Mm. And so he taught me how to roof houses, which, uh, <laughs> To this day, I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> but uh, but we did that, and we did that yep. together. So we spent a lot of time at the fire station and away from the fire station together. I see, I see. So uh, in 1981, he was no longer uh, working uh, at the time of this incident at uh, Station 15. Why did he leave 15s? Charlie had made driver. Okay. He was second driver on 15 engine. He made driver, mm-hmm. and he went to a 56 truck. Okay. And uh, so he 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 promoted out of there, and of course we missed him. But we still worked, you know, on the same shift. He was still on B shift, and um, he went up there. And I remember, you know, when we were, you know, off duty roofing and stuff like that. You know, he he did not like North Dallas. He didn't mm-hmm. like it. You know, he was an Oak right. Cliff boy. Lived in sure. Oak Cliff. Been assigned to Oak Cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't make you know at that time in uh, that area of North Dallas is north of fifty sixes. There wasn't a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And they didn't make a lot of runs and things like that. The area around sevens and up that way was just starting to grow and build and things like that. They didn't, they didn't, had very few fires and Charlie was used to Oak Cliff, you know, going to fires. And so, you know, he was, he always said, you know, I wish we'd have some, I wish we'd had some, I wish we'd do this. Yeah. And so the night of the fire and everything, I remember I was assigned at 26s at the time there. And, uh, we, you know, I'd made second driver and gone to 26s. He'd made driver and gone to 56s. Uh, and you're still on the same shift. So we're still on the same shift. And, um, you know, I kept thinking, you know, when the second alarm came in, you know, and I heard the box and things like that, I thought, oh, finally, he's going to be happy. He got Charlie's a fire. Charlie's getting a fire. He's got a, they got a fire. He got some, got some work. Right. And then when it went to a third, I thought, you know, hey, they, they really got, you know, something going up there pretty good. And uh, so I thought, you know, he'd be, he'd be excited. He'd be tired, but he'd be excited, you know, the next day. So – did uh, I understand that maybe he had bought a boat at some point in time? Yeah, during this uh, the roof and things, and mm-hmm. he would he had had bought a boat. You know, looking at more family time, more rec- mm-hmm. recreational time, and mm-hmm. things like that. And so, you know, roofing and working off duty plus the promotion of driver and things like that. You know, he was looking at doing more things family oriented. You know, instead of Charlie was provided for his family and provided for them very well, and he worked he worked his tail off. You know, to do that. And he finally reached the point to where he could do some things, you know, for family and recreation and having some fun and more of those family types. And and like we said, you know, we'd made plans that next day, you know, to take that boat out. So, yeah. So by the time the uh, third came in, you're thinking he may be pretty tired tomorrow on, on he, this boat trip. I thought this boat trip, you know, <laughs> it might be Stu doing more of the boat training <laughs> and boat driving than him. But I thought you yeah. know, he was going to be in a good mood. He's going to be happy, you know. Because uh, he's like off fireman. He likes to go to work. You know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we train for when we do it. And, right. you know, when we get to go play our crafts. So, yeah. So, he, I thought, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a fun day, you know, as we're looking forward to. He's going to be happy and, and it would be a great day out there, you know, going to the lake. So, you were working at 26s on that particular day, the day of the incident? The day of the incident. I think okay, so we, we talked. You heard you know, the second come in. You heard the third come in. Sometime after that, what, hap- what happened next? After that, uh, you know, the third came in. We were still in the house at 26s. 
and uh, the main line rang. I heard we could hear the main line ring. At, at, tw- at old 26s, it was kind of a split level station, and the ambulance crew slept up on, on, on part off of the kitchen, and then the watch room and everything was down on the lower level, and then the bedroom was on another level. But you could hear the main line ring throughout the station. There were different main lines, you know, so you could answer. Uh, one was right off of the kitchen. So in the, well, I was uh, on the ambulance that night, and uh, you heard the main line ring. Didn't think much of it and everything. And then I heard them call me to the main line. And uh, so I thought that's kind of weird. So I went down there, answered the main line, Grant, you know, like we do with your last name. And uh, they told me, said, hey, we need you to get uh, 726. We need you to meet the chaplain, Denny Burris, and Battalion 6. And uh need you to go to Charlie Rogers' house and tell him that Charlie's passed away tonight. And I was stunned, you know, and what they were doing is they wanted the, wanted the ambulance because his wife, Linda, she had some heart conditions and heart. And uh, so they wanted us there in case the, the shock of being told they had no idea about our relationship, you know, at the alarm office. So it was just a coincidence. They they probably called and asked to speak to somebody on, on the ambulance. On 726. Not knowing Right. That they were calling his friend Every, and off-duty partner, roofing partner, and was going to the lake with him the next day. Right. Everything just lined mm. up because they lived in 26's First Alarm District. Okay. And so that's why it was it was us, you know, that did that. And so, you know, I was stunned. I mean, I mean, I remember that they had that ask me, said, Grant, are you still there? Because I was just stunned. I mean, what I was hearing. Yeah. It just is total shock. And I, I acknowledged, you know, yes, I got it. And they gave me the address. Well, I knew where it was. And uh, so I went and I got it, and I got David Rumbo. Yep. And he was riding the ambulance with me. And we got up, and w- we went and met Denny and the, t- and the battalion chief. And uh, once we were all assembled there, we went down to the house. And I remember as we were walking up to the house, it was it was the inside house was blue, and it was from the TV being on. Mm. And also that you saw that blue reflection inside. We knocked on the door and when Linda opened the door and she just looked at us and said, he's gone. If you listen to Sound of a Siren, one of our early podcasts, you know that if you're married to a firefighter, the last thing you ever want to see when your loved one is away at the fire station is a group of uninvited firefighters on your doorstep. And so, when she opened the door, they didn't have to say anything. She knew what this meant, and she spoke before they did. On the opposite side of town, in Richardson... A similar next-of-kin notification would play out at the home of Ed Metters, where his wife Karen was at home with the couple's four young children. Ed and his wife Karen had just celebrated a wedding anniversary when this tragic incident occurred and were supposed to be leaving on a little anniversary celebration vacation that morning. I was able to reach out to Karen and have a phone conversation with her recently. Here's a clip from that call. So uh, take me back now to uh, August of 1981. Uh, he goes to the fire station that day, and mm-hmm. I think maybe y'all had plans for an upcoming trip. Is that right? 
Yes, he <laughs> went in. He went in on that Friday, and he was. He we had asked his parents if they would come over to the house and mm-hmm. watch the kids mm-hmm. for the weekend, and we were going to sneak down to San Antonio. And uh, just do the, the the river walk down there, and then just just mm-hmm. a little time away, just the two of us, you know. Mm-hmm. And his parents said yes, no problem, and uh, that that was it. And it was mm-hmm. just a normal work day. And when he he always called me at night after mm-hmm. you know saying good night to the kids, and then I call he called me again around ten thirty, and I said I had everything packed and everything was ready to go, and he said, well, guess what? I'm not going to be on the ambulance and running all night. I switched out. Somebody else came in and and mm-hmm. uh, they could run the ambulance. So he mm-hmm. said, I'll be on, on the engine. And now I won't probably be, you know, running all over for all the crap that goes on on a Friday night with accidents. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. And so, I teased him and I said, boy, you better be, you better be sure about that. You might have a big fire and you'll wish you were back on the ambulance. Oh my. Sure enough. Yep. That was the last thing I said. Love you. See you in the morning. <laughs> wow. Wow. So y'all were driving to San Antonio that next morning and he was excited yes. that he was actually riding truck 56 instead of the ambulance. That yes, night. exactly. Yep. Wow. Ed's trip to San Antonio with his wife Karen was not to be, nor Charlie's trip to the lake with his friend Stuart. And the lives of these men's families were forever altered that day. We'll talk more about the aftermath of this incident in our next episode, including the toll it took on the families and the toll it took on the other firefighters at the scene. Remember, this was before we came to understand the importance of critical incident stress management. We'll also look at lessons learned and some of the improvements the fire services made since then that help keep firefighters safer. Finally, although nothing can change the fact that this was a tragic incident with horrible consequences for two families and no small amount of mental anguish for many others, we'll take a look at some of the good things that in the course of time came to pass in response to this incident. You know, we're fond of saying, We'll never forget, but all too often we do forget. One good way to honor our fallen heroes is not just to memorialize them, but to make sure we learn every possible lesson from their death. I think that's what they would want us to do, and that's exactly what we'll try to do in the next episode. And finally, a dedication. Today's episode is, of course, dedicated to Ed Metters and Charlie Rogers two American heroes who died doing what they loved. We will never forget you, nor your sacrifice. Mm